as a child, I remember putting my head on my pillow, drifting off to sleep, and experiencing a nightmare. You kids ever have this at all? Rachel Plowman, do you ever have nightmares? Never. Tim and Luke, you guys have nightmares? Yeah? Seth, do you have nightmares sometimes? No? I know I used to have nightmares. Not a lot, but I used to have nightmares. And I would remember people like chasing me. And so I'm like running from them and my legs feel like they're 500 pounds each. And I'm running in in mud just trying to get away from them. Somehow they never catch me, but I'm always trying to run away from them. I remember being in my room having a nightmare about somebody trying to come in to get me and the door is locked and he's trying to open the door and maybe bang on the door trying to get in. I remember having nightmares as a child about being in some danger and trying desperately to say, Help! And and all that could come out of my mouth was this. And I tried, I tried, I just couldn't get any... Is Is this relating to any of you all? Well, since I've been an adult, my nightmares have reduced in number, though I still have them occasionally. I want to share with you probably the most predominant nightmare that I have in my life now, and it it has to do with relating to becoming a a full-time preaching pastor. Picture it with me. It's Saturday night. I'm up late preparing my sermon for Sunday morning, and in recent days I have backed off of the music responsibilities, but, you know, I used to lead worship up here, and I would find myself uh, in my dreams standing in front of you all. I can see your faces. I've got a guitar here, and it's time to start a worship service, but I haven't selected any music to sing. I've not practiced any of the music to sing. The music we're singing, I don't even know. (laughs) So, I'm sitting there it's bad, okay? In my mind, I'm like not prepared at all for Sunday morning. And it is a nightmare. Other nightmares find me in front of Rock Valley Bible Church, right where I am, unprepared to preach. I look down at my notes, and I can't read them at all. I'm not even sure what passage I'm preaching from, but I just start talking. I just start saying something. I start saying, but I don't know what I'm saying And I forget what I was saying, and I don't know where I was going. And for me, that's a nightmare. Philip Del Rey, do you ever have that kind of nightmare? No. No. (laughs) The Lord bless you. You (laughs) And these nightmares in the past few years have really come about because of the apprehension that I have in doing something that I feel like maybe I'm not fully prepared to do. My wife has had nightmares before. I remember when we were first married. Yvonne and I were married just right as soon as she finished UCLA. And uh, she used to tell me oftentimes how, yep, she had another nightmare dream last night. She, she dreamed that she was taking an exam for which she didn't study for and was totally unprepared. And those used to be a lot in our family. You can talk to her later. But it used to be a lot, but now they have reduced. And But every now and then, you know, every... Whatever, half a year now, they're probably down to. So I had another school nightmare dream about not being prepared. In our text this morning, we will see Jesus describe some people who aren't prepared. Now, this morning, 
And the title of my message is appropriately, Be Prepared. But when I say be prepared, I'm not talking about being prepared for activities on Sunday morning, preaching or leading worship. I'm not talking about being prepared for your presentation at work on Tuesday. I'm not talking about being prepared for some exam next week you will take. When I say be prepared, I'm talking about being prepared for the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. The return of Christ to the earth has been the theme of our study in the Gospel of Matthew over the past month and a half or so. After giving His disciples the signs of His return in chapter 24, in verse 32 of chapter 24, He turns a corner and begins to speak about how we need to anticipate His return. A few weeks ago, we looked at the fig tree and Noah and the story of the thief in the night, and each of those stories taught us to be ready. Last week, we looked at the the sensible slave that was blessed for his faithfulness as opposed to the unfaithful slave, the wicked slave who was cursed for his wickedness. And that story taught us to be faithful. And this morning, we're going to examine the story of the ten virgins. The main message, application of this is this. Be prepared. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. I want to read the text for us this morning and then dig into it. Jesus, speaking to His disciples, said this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent or wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will be enough for us And you too, go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This parable begins in verse 1 with a common expression of Jesus. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who went out to meet the bridegroom. Jesus takes this wedding custom of the day and uses it to teach what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And As you know, as we've been going through Matthew, Jesus often did this. He took a a common illustration in life and He said there's some aspect about that that is comparable and likable to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the book of Matthew alone, He described the kingdom of heaven to be like a, a sower who scatters seed upon different kinds of soil. He described it to be like a field in which a man's enemy planted tares. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a a mustard seed. The smallest of seed, but grows up to be very, very large. He talked about how the kingdom of heaven was like leaven. Right? Just a little bit, it leavens the whole lump of dough, has 
permeating influence does the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is like a, a man that, that finds a buried treasure and sells everything he has to get it. Or like a man who sells everything he has to get this fine, costly pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that drags in good and bad fish and the bad are cast off and the good are saved. The kingdom of heaven is like a man forgiven of a great debt he can never pay. The kingdom of heaven is like laborers in the vineyard who all go out and who all receive the same wage regardless of how long they worked. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who invites many people to the wedding feast of his son, though only few of them want to come. And this morning, the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. As we go through the story, we need to understand that it's not just a story for a story. It is a story that has similarities then to the kingdom of heaven. One of the difficulties, particularly in the interpretation of this parable, is how far to push the analogies. I mean, how far do you push things? Some would find symbolic meaning in everything. The fact that they're virgins signifies something. The fact that there are ten virgins in particular. Right? The number ten, they find significance in that. The fact that oil, oil has this special significance. And the lamps have significance. And the sleep has significance. And so people press this all the way down. As we go through this parable, we're going to kind of battle with that of how far we need to press our interpretation of that. But even before you get to the interpretation, there are some difficulties in even understanding the customs of the day. There are some things that are odd in this story. I mean, who are these virgins? Why would they go out to meet a bridegroom? What type of lamp do they have? What's about the delay in their coming? Don't weddings always start at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoons? How does that happen? Is this typical? And these questions that we have are really only due to the difference in culture to the original hearers that would have seemed odd at all to them. They would have clearly understood what Jesus was talking about because he was describing what typically takes place at a wedding feast. Now, like, for instance, I thought about this. Suppose Jesus were alive today and told us how the kingdom of heaven is compared to a wedding celebration. The kingdom of heaven is like a bride and groom who exchanged their vows and headed out of the church. And many were wishing them luck, throwing rice upon them. But some were throwing rocks. When the groomsmen heard about this, they cast out those worthless fellows into outer darkness. In that place there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we would understand that parable, right? Throwing of rice is a common phenomenon. I'm not sure of its full significance, but it means something about some goodwill to the, the bride and the groom. But to throw rocks at the bride and groom... It's not very good. Obviously, that's a curse. We read recently in uh, our Bible reading, through I think it was 2 Samuel chapter 16 of Shimei, you know, throwing rocks and cursing. That's typical of what that would have been. And it would have been easy to teach us that many in the kingdom desire to be a blessing throwing rice, but there are those in the kingdom who are desiring to curse by throwing rocks. Easy to understand, right? But think now about a thousand years from now. Two thousand years from now. Maybe their wedding ceremonies are a little bit different. They don't throw rice. Maybe they do something else. In fact, I even read, uh, I think it's in Morocco. They throw fruit on the bride and groom, hoping then that they'll be fruitful. Just, you know, some things like that. Um, 
But the thrust of the teaching, I think it would be understood. Whether you understood the exact customs of the day or not, I think it would be understood. And this is our experience with the parable of the ten virgins. Those who listened to Jesus saw lots of comparisons, understood fully what He was talking about. And though we stand as a bit of a disadvantage away from them, I think the parable is easy to understand. Here it is. Of the ten that were waiting for the bridegroom, only five were prepared to meet the bridegroom. And those who weren't prepared never made it to the wedding feast. That's, the, that, that's it. There were ten of them. Half of them were prepared. They made it to the wedding feast. The other half of them were not prepared. Didn't make it to the wedding feast. And in the broadest of terms, really, it describes how many people who are waiting for the return of the Messiah, anticipating for the big party in heaven when He returns, due to their lack of preparation, will miss out. They'll receive no part of the Messiah. They'll receive no part of the joys of heaven. And thus, this parable comes really with a strong warning for us. Church body, you need to be prepared so you don't miss out at the coming of Christ. Well, with that as an overview, let's start digging into it verse by verse. The first point this morning, I want to look at those who are waiting for the bridegroom. Waiting for the bridegroom in the first five verses. In verse 1, we're introduced to these ten virgins. They took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, what we do know about marriages in the day of Jesus, I will tell you about that. We do know marriages in the days of Jesus were, were first of all, arranged. The blonders, right? Talk with the bonesires. We have a girl. You have a boy. We think this might be a good thing. And they arranged the marriage. Sometimes even years before the actual marriage would come about. Talk to them. Groom's parents paying a dowry to the Belongers. Belongers having a Christiana in their eyes of high reputation. The, the dowry's like hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> but the Bonesires are thinking, it's worth it. The Belongers are saying, hallelujah. We won the lottery. Thanks, Christiana. At that point, the, fish, the couple is officially engaged. Should they break that covenant, the money has to go back. It's got to be all resolved. At which point the bonsires sing, Hallelujah! <laughs> and then they'll be on the search again. Well, at some point later down, there'd be an official ceremony in which vows were exchanged. And the couple would be officially betrothed to one another. It's called the betrothal period, lasting about a year. Just making sure that there is purity there. Though the marriage is not consummated, the couple's really officially married. That was Joseph and Mary. They were betrothed. They were committed. Though fully, they hadn't consummated their marriage yet. It wasn't fully. They weren't even living together at that point. Still apart. Then about a year down the road, after the betrothal period, there'd be a marriage ceremony. Now in our culture, you think about marriages and you know, bride and groom and friends and relatives all converge upon a church. Two o'clock Saturday afternoon, like I said... Followed by a nice little reception. Everyone goes home and happily ever after. You see the bride and groom come back in a week or so after their honeymoon. In the days of Jesus, it was different. Weddings and feasts would often last for days. Feasting well into the night. And as this story indicates, there's a point in the celebration when the bridegroom comes out of his chamber rejoicing. As Psalm 19.5 says, 
to claim his bride at the wedding feast. And during this occasion, he would be paraded through the streets at night by some virgins who, who lit the way with their lamps, you know, forming a, along the side. And so people who watched out and saw the procession of things could rejoice with the bridegroom in the day of his happiness, going to finally claim his bride. And this is what was taking place in the story that Jesus tells. Here, ten virgins had gone out to meet the bridegroom, bridegroom to escort him into the wedding feast where he will be united with his bride. And these virgins are roughly equivalent to our modern-day bridal party, our wedding party. I don't believe there's any significance whatsoever in the fact that there were ten of them. I think that probably ten was a typical size of a wedding. I mean, most of our weddings, I don't know how many bridesmaids are there, how many groomsmen. You know, maybe three or four might be an average. Some have been down to two. I know, I know some have had ten. I know some have had eleven. I know some have had more. I think in the days of Jesus, the wedding being such a big thing, I think ten was a pretty typical number. And I'm just thinking about these, these ten virgins, and I can imagine all of their excitement about what's going to take place. They're anticipating the part they're going to play. You know, in our wedding ceremony, the, the bridesmaids, they stand up, you know, and they're before everybody. But I can imagine these, these virgins thinking about how they're going to bring the, the groom to his bride and, and seeing the face of the bride as their friend and, and how happy she will be and how happy he will be and how happy they will be together. Rejoicing, really excited about it. And, and perhaps even their enthusiasm was coupled with some singing. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the groom, you know, bride. They're singing also, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. They're just excited and fired up for what's going to take place here. Happiness celebration was high. I mean, after all, it is a wedding. But central to this story here is that half of these virgins were wise and half of them were foolish. Again, I don't think there's any significance in the fact that Exactly half of them were wise and half were foolish. I think that Jesus putting merely just putting these virgins into two different categories. He's already done that in many of the illustrations surrounding this text. Back in Matthew 24, verse 40, he says there are two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Right, Dividing mankind into two different types of people. There's, there's, there's the taken people and there are the left people. Verse 41 speaks about the two women grinding in the mill. Right? Just going about their business. And one is taken and one is left. Verses 45 through 51. There are two different types of servants. There's a, a faithful servant who's rewarded. And there is the unfaithful servant who is punished. Next week, when we see the talents, we're going to again see two different types of people. We'll see faithful slaves as opposed to wicked slaves. And the week after that, when we look at the sheep and goat judgments, there are going to be two types of people. Some are like sheep and some are like goats. And there's going to be a divide. And dear people, there are two types of people in this world. There are those who will be with Jesus forever and there will be those who will be cast out into utter darkness. Jesus said here there are two types of virgins, the wise and the foolish. And notice the only difference between them is really the foolish virgins didn't take any oil. But these wise virgins did. You can read about that in verses 3 and 4. I think that these wise virgins probably knew a little bit about the wedding protocol. They knew that there might be a delay in the program. Right? As they were waiting, they knew that maybe the, the bridegroom wanted to wait a little bit longer with his family in his house. 
Maybe he wanted to spend some more time with his friends before he finally left to get to his bride. Probably more likely the case, his bachelor friends were holding him up with some type of trickery. There's some type of delay going on. And these wise virgins knew that a delay was real. And so they brought a little extra oil just in case. And indeed there was a delay. It wasn't a short delay. It was a long delay. In fact, the delay was so long that the virgins had difficulty staying awake. Let me ask you, have you ever seen this scenario before? Someone's listening to a lecture. Someone's listening to a lecture and their eyes start getting real heavy. And, And they're about like this. And then they wake up, and then they're, they're watching, and, and their, their eyes get heavy. Have you ever seen that? Are you, I'm so thankful, Lord, that never happens here. <laughs> you know, Yvonne and I often say, when, when this happens to us, we say, boy, I was hurting. We say, I was hurting. And this is how the virgins felt. It was late, delaying, and they fell asleep. In the Bible, oftentimes sleep is used as a metaphor to denote a lazy man. <clears throat> How long, oh slugger, will you lie down? When will you rise from your sleep? But I think it's wrong to take that imagery here. I think you need to take the context of this parable in this passage. He didn't, Jesus and all didn't say that it's foolish to sleep or evil to sleep. I think he just mentioned sleep just to show how long the delay of the bridegroom actually was. The procession was planned for the evening, but there was a delay and it, it just wasn't going. And it was a delay and it was long enough even beyond their expectations that you know, if they knew how long it was going to be, they'd have taken a nap in the day to be able to come at a better time. But I think if the bridegroom kept delaying and delaying and delaying and delaying, the virgins fell asleep. And I think even here, the lesson is this, that there is going to be a delay in His coming. There has been a delay in His coming of 2,000 years. The problem, it's interesting, the problem in the previous parable is that the master returned too soon. And the wicked slave thought that he was going to delay. And he wasn't ready for his return. The problem with this parable is that the bridegroom delayed. And the foolish virgins weren't prepared for his delay. It seems really, it balances a great lesson. We need to be prepared. Should the Lord come back soon and be faithful today like last week? And we need to be prepared should the Lord delay His coming. We might be wise doing that. And I say regarding the return of Christ, there are those who foolishly expect a return so soon that they don't make long-range plans. Right? There are people like that. And yet there are those on the other side who see His delay and fail to be diligent in their faithfulness to the Lord today. Like we saw last week. Well, here these virgins are waiting for the bridegroom. Next we get my second point, verses 6 through 12, called to meet the bridegroom. In the middle of the night, they're all sleeping. Okay, let's make the sound of sleep. Just Behold the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! I'm startled. And to them, though he delayed, once you fell asleep, it would have seemed like, bam, he came back right away. And there would have been these sleeping virgins, right? They would have would got up. They said, hey, it's time for us to escort the bridegroom into the wedding feast. At the news of this call, the virgins 
would have got to prepare their lamps, like verse 7 talks about. We need to march the bridegroom there. Now, when you think about these lamps, we ought not to think of like a little genie lamp, which has got this big you know, reservoir of oil and just kind of burning all the time, burning all night. I don't think that's what you want to see. I think you want to think more about a torch. I mean, after all, they're going to light a way of a path. A little, little flicker of a lamp, that's not going to light much. But a torch will light the way. And you think about how a torch works. You know, there's some kind of rag, some kind of uh, substance there that will hold the fuel or hold the oil. I believe that these, uh, these lamps had some kind of rag in there, which you, know, you doused it with oil, and then you burned it, and then the oil would go and be able to burn and be a bright light. Eventually, that oil would go away, and you put some more, would burn up, and they put some more oil on there, and it would go. And as is true of oil, you put that on a rag, and you let it sit for a while, what's going to happen? Kind of maybe going to evaporate away a little bit, and then when you go to light it, maybe, maybe some of it in the middle wasn't evaporated away, but it'll, you know, it'll flame up pretty well. And the foolish virgins merely came with, with all this oil around it, and as he delayed, all that oil evaporated off, and pretty soon they had a dry cloth, which wasn't going to work so well. But these wise ones took out their extra oil, doused the rags, lit their lamps, and it was shining glory. They're prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. Now, unfortunately for the foolish here, they'd failed to bring any oil reserves. But they saw that the wise had some extra oil, and in their failure, they sought help from others who had been wise. So they begged for a little extra oil. Look at verse 8. Could you please share your oil with us? I think about, maybe it's a segue here, how true to life this is. I mean, there are many people who live in foolishness for years, only to find themselves in trouble at some point. And maybe they're foolish in their finances, racking up debts on credit cards, right? For years, buying what they don't need with the money they don't have so they can get what they don't need. Maybe it's with their bodies, abusing them, drugs and alcohol, steroids, overeating. Maybe it's with children, being unwise, neglecting to train them when the cement is soft in the younger years of their life. Maybe it's with their education, not thinking, oh, the education is not important, I don't need that. And eventually their foolish choices catch up to them. Their credit cards become so overwhelming, they're having difficulties even buying the necessities of life. Their bodies have been so destroyed, they're beginning to live with constant pain. Pain in the knees, arthritis, sclerosis of the liver, cirrhosis of the liver. Their children are rebelling against the faith and causing immense hardship to them. Their careers are at a standstill because of a, a lack of education. And as a pastor, I've seen these type of people come and seek for help. And, and when they come, oftentimes it's like they just happen upon these difficulties over which they had no control. It's like, Oh, I've got this problem now. I don't know what to do. In fact, I have found, I'm wise now, I have found as a pastor, my phone often rings Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, and Saturday night with people who have been unwise even times for years. And now they're in a crisis. And they want me to solve their problem right here and now. I've helped some people, but I have got really to the point. I mean, people with... Massive problem. In fact, we had a phone call just recently with uh, someone just demanding. They called my home. I don't office. I don't answer my office phone anymore after noon on Saturday, figuring that you know it can wait. But uh, we got a call even at home, and uh, this woman was demanding to speak with me because she had this problem that needed to be solved just right now. 
And I suspect that it was for years of, of difficulty. It came down right then. See, and I think in all this, it wasn't difficult for these foolish virgins to take along a little flask of oil. I mean, it doesn't take much to have this little oil. These wise virgins had it. You know, maybe they had something attached in your belt. I don't know. But they're presumptuous. And it doesn't take much to just not spend the money for the thing that you don't need or to spend time with your children reading the Bible with them and praying with them and showing them and modeling to them what it means to follow Christ. It doesn't take much to stay away from the things that are bad for your body. And it doesn't take much... It doesn't take much to make a bit of a sacrifice in your younger years to really stay at school and so that you can profit later. But a day comes when poor choices come back to haunt you. I know that some of you even may be experiencing those things now. And sadly, it's a lesson of life. There's little that can be done oftentimes. Even David in his foolishness was sin with Bathsheba. You know, he reaped the consequence of that. There was little that could be done. He confessed to the Lord, but his whole life crumbled at that point. Had a son which rebelled against him. Had a, a son who defiled his wives and concubines. Lived in distress, turmoil. Didn't get to build the temple like he wanted to. And for these foolish virgins, help was not available. In verse 9, the prudent refused to help them said, no, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Instead, go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now, at first you might say, hey, this is shocking, right? They're not, they're not sharing. But they understood what a, what a shame and a disgrace it would bring to the bridegroom if they shared their oil and then had halfway through their parade, all of a sudden the parade goes dark and they're going to enter into the wedding feast in a dark procession. That'd be a shame. That would be unloving of him. And so what they say here, to solve the problem, you all go off, says in verse, uh, I think it's 11 here. No, verse 9, you go off and buy some yourselves. And we're going to see in verse 11 that they come and they go too late. You know how the story ends. They're shut out for their feast. Before we get there, let's look even at verse 10. While they're way to make the purchase... The bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. I mean, here we see the people, the, the wise one coming into the wedding feast. Right? And as we think of this, is about the kingdom of heaven. This is talking about eternal realm. And this is what it's all about. It's true in life that if you make bad choices here and now, it's going to haunt you in life. But I'm telling you that it is magnified much more greatly in eternity. To be foolish here on earth regarding eternal matters will catch up to you someday. And maybe that day will be when you hear the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Maybe that day that it will catch up to you will be when you see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky. Maybe it will catch up to you when you hear the shout of the Lord saying, I'm coming! Like the foolish virgins... And like many things in life, that day may find you unprepared. And if you're unprepared that day, it is too late. You have been the biggest fool of all. It's one thing to be a fool in life with life consequences. Another thing to be a fool in eternity with eternal consequences. And your foolishness will be shown for the world to see. If you ask then, how can I be prepared? It's really not too difficult in the parable. It's simply you need oil. You need oil in your lamp. Now, what exactly this oil is, 
Cause all types of discussions in the commentary. Some say it's the Holy Spirit because in the Old Testament, you know, the anointing of the priest with oil represents the consecration of the priest. Kind of, you tie that to the Holy Spirit. Some say it signifies grace. Some say it signifies regeneration. I don't know if we can figure it out. I'm not sure it really matters. Regardless of what it is, everyone agrees that the wise virgins are the saved and the foolish virgins are the unsaved. Well, you ask, how then can I be saved? How can I be prepared? Oh, by trusting in the righteousness of Christ. Right? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea that Christ is there pleading for me. And I'm trusting His pleading on my behalf. That's how you get there. By trusting in the righteousness of another for your sins. By believing in the name of Jesus. By seeing His sacrifice on the cross as totally sufficient for your sins. By loving Christ. By following Christ. This is all wrapped up in what it means to be saved, to be rescued, delivered. And so I ask you, does that describe you? Is there oil in your lamp? I think especially right now, even of you children, is that you can't have your parents' oil. It won't work. You say, well, my dad's got oil. My dad's got faith. He's believing, but I'm just kind of going through life, just whatever. Kids, you've got to have your own oil. You've got to trust and believe on your own. Even here, it's divided. Ten virgins. Five have the oil, are saved. Five don't and are lost. Your faith, children, in Christ must be real. It must be personal. Well, if you're prepared for His coming, as those were in verse 10, you see the bridegroom coming. And they went into the wedding feast. And I'm telling you, this is going to be a joyous time when these five wives virgins in torchlight procession marched with the bridegroom around the town, arrive at the wedding feast and came into the banquet hall to join the celebration. I mean, it's a, it a glorious time of a wedding feast. You ever been to a wedding? A wedding reception? Jake said he was at one yesterday. There are good times, huh? It's good times to be had by all. And that is actually even the imagery used the end of the book of Revelation to describe the ultimate destiny of all who love Christ. Listen to this. John writes, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. This is a glorious time. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven is like a marriage supper. And when you compare that even to the marriage suppers that we've been to, I'm going to tell you that the food is far better. The atmosphere is far greater. It's going to be far more enjoyable to you. For those of you married, it's like going through a second marriage because that's indeed what's going to happen. When you're there, you can say, I don't want this reception to end. But if it ends, which I think it probably does, we, the church, as the body of Christ, will enter into perfect 
marital bliss with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And forever live in happiness and joy. What a joy awaits us. But for those who didn't have the oil, it's totally different. These five foolish virgins went off on this errand to find oil in the middle of the night. I don't know how they did that. I mean, this is long before Walmart, Supercenters, 24 Hours, Convenience Stores. Those weren't around those times. They probably had to wake an owner of a shop. You know, they'd knock on his door and say, Hey, can you wake up? We want to buy some oil. He says, You buy some oil tomorrow. He said, No, we need some oil tonight. Oh, go buy some oil tomorrow. They go down the street maybe trying to wake up. Finally, they wake someone up and get some oil. It's taken some time. Maybe someone opens a shop, sells them some oil. Twice the price. Okay, well, twice the price. But the time, by the time they came to the wedding feast, they saw there that the door was shut, as it says in verse 11. And they called out to the Lord. Lord, Lord, open up to us. We've come to join the wedding feast. We know we're a bit late. We know that we were unprepared, but we've purchased oil now. We have it. We've come to join the party. Listen, as they say, better late than never. Can you please open the door for us? But then come some of the most terrifying words in all of the Bible in verse 12. He answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And the implication is this. You're not getting into the wedding feast. I say these are the most terrifying words in the Bible because these virgins were fully expecting to come into the wedding feast. I mean, see, it's one thing for those who know they've lived a wicked, self-centered, sinful life to arrive at the gates of heaven and be turned away and sent to hell. I mean, they knew full well that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They knew full well that their sinful actions deserved condemnation. I think about when the, the, Jesus was crucified, there are two criminals crucified, one on the right and one on the left, and one of them said, hey, we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Right? When, when you did wrong and you knew it and were punished, you're not surprised. Certainly you fear the punishment and certainly it's terrible, but it's all expected. But now think with me, if you think you're innocent and come into the very throne of God to the marriage supper, only to find that you will be condemned, that you've missed it, you've not been prepared. Is that terrifying? Expecting joy and happiness, only to have hell and turmoil. And this parable isn't the only place it's taught in Scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, we study this in our flock groups in recent weeks. I don't need to dwell on this much, but I'd simply say it. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Right? These were righteous people saying, Jesus, Jesus, let us in. We did all these good things for you. And Jesus will say, Matthew 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's a fearful thing, beloved. In fact, I want turn in your Bibles to Luke 13. Here's another case in which the same truth is taught. 
Luke 13, Jesus was going about passing through the villages, teaching and proclaiming the gospel. And someone said, Lord, are there just a few that are saved? And then in verse 24, Jesus says this, Luke 13, 24, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Is that the five foolish virgins seeking to enter? They're saying, Lord, open to us. And what did Jesus say? They will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Maybe the setting's a little bit different. Maybe it's not a wedding feast. In this instance, it's a master of a house. But the teaching's the same. You have people deluded into thinking that they're going to reach the pearly gates and walk on the golden streets. And many seeking to enter, but in the end, they're going to be turned away. And they're going to argue. Maybe the virgin said, hey, we have oil now. These argue. They say, look, Verse 26, then you'll begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught us in the streets, right? We were in church, Jesus. We, we ate of you. We communed with you. We took communion. We heard Steve preach your words to us faithfully each week and we know the Bible and you taught us. And then he will say to them the same truth. Verse 27, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. That's saying that there are evildoers in the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, this isn't the guy on the street who never darkens the door of the church. These are Christians coming to the throne of heaven and asking Jesus to be let into the kingdom. And Jesus turns them away. Now, I found this this week. This was amazing. I always thought sheep and goat judgment, you know, they come before and, you know, the sheep are way over here, the goats are way over here, and ne'er the twain shall meet. Look at how close these people are to the kingdom of heaven. Verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. Let me read that again. And let me ask you, where are these wicked people who are going to be cast out? They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. Do you know where they are? They're about two inches away from the kingdom of God. There's a door there. Maybe it's got an open lattice. Maybe they see through the door. Maybe they're looking in the window and they're seeing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God. They see them with their eyes. And they're trying to enter in. They are inches away from the kingdom. And then he casts them out. Because he says, you yourselves being cast out. Now think about these virgins. On the outside, I think that it's very difficult to tell the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins. I mean, each of them were asked to serve as an official escort for the bridegroom. Each of them accepted their duty. They're awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom, carrying their lamps, ready to 
Like them, and in many ways, these ten virgins loosely describe the church of Jesus Christ. The church is filled with those who have made some type of commitment to help the bridegroom. They've expressed a desire to see the bridegroom come, and, and they're expecting to arrive in heaven someday. But it's in any church. There's a difference among its people. There's a difference among these virgins. Some brought oil, some didn't. Some were prepared, some weren't. And in the end, those differences will be manifest clearly. And those people in the church will be divided. The wise virgins are going to enjoy the wedding feast. The foolish virgins will not enjoy the wedding feast. Inches away, they won't enjoy it. They'll be weeping and gnashing of truth, of teeth. And I just say to you, church family, that this truth is dear to my heart because this is the very truth that the Lord used in my life really to, to transform it immensely. I grew up in a, a mainline Protestant church, <clears throat> heard a lot about Jesus, heard a lot of Bible stories, but I was never taught the whole counsel of God. This truth... Never came into our church, that's for sure. We were never taught within our church that there could be and there are those in the church who are deceived. We were never taught that. And when I grew up, we were taught to believe in Jesus. And if you made a profession of some type, you're doing fine. But we were never challenged as a congregation to test yourself and see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. A constant thing we ought to do is constantly self-examine ourselves. See whether we are in the faith. See whether we have oil. See whether we are a foolish virgin. And what's interesting here is even that this isn't a small issue in the church. This is a big issue. Jesus says here there are ten virgins and half of them are deceived. Now, I don't think there's signification in the sense it's got to be 50%, but even here in Luke 13, look what Jesus said. It's few that are true, and it's many that are deceived. In Matthew chapter 7, that same thing. It's few and many. So if you're going to put percentages on it, I think you start at 50% and go downward. 40%, 30%, 20% of professing Christians are true. We were never taught in my church growing up that a false believers in Jesus Christ could very well be in our midst. But listen, church family, just because someone says, I'm a follower of Christ, doesn't mean that they will enjoy the marriage feast at the end of the age. They may look a lot like everybody else in the end. They may have desires to get in like these people do in Luke chapter 13. But in the end, Jesus will cast them out. Just because you say you're a follower of Christ doesn't mean you are a wise virgin. Unless you're prepared for the return of Christ, you may find out that actually you are a fool. Now, when I heard this teaching for the first time, it shook me to the bones. Not really so much because my life was in rampant wickedness and I knew myself to be a foolish virgin. That wasn't the case. But the case was this. is because... I'd never heard the Bible teach that before. I said, really? That's what the Bible says? And I looked at Matthew 7 and I said, it is. And I thought about my 21 years of church life and how I viewed people who were in church but yet had no desire for Christ. It's all Christians and we'll all be there at the end. You, 
you know, you say Jesus and you sing something about Jesus, we'll all be okay. All of a sudden, then I get this truth and I can see this person who's going to church has no desire for Christ. He's not a believer. He might be in the church, but he's not a believer. And it really transformed my life. I remember going to college. I went to a secular school where uh, I knew five Christians out of... I knew five people who went to church out of a thousand students at Knoxville. So those of you kids who uh, heard about Plunk Day a few weeks ago and really say maybe we ought to go to Knox College because that would be really fun, uh, let me warn you is if you go there, you're going to be in the vast, 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 vast minority of professing Christians. Five people went to church regularly. Which might actually be good for you, because it was so good for me to endure through those difficulties and yet stay true. As untrained as I was, I didn't know this until I was a senior in college. But I heard this. It shook me to the bones. I started seeing things different. I said, boy, if the church hid that truth from me, what other truth was hidden from me? And And this truth is what drove me to seminary to say, I got to be a wise virgin. I've got to be prepared. I want to be prepared for His coming. I want to be sure that I have my oil. And so that's what I did. I went to seminary, learned the Bible for myself. I didn't go to be a pastor. The Lord has seen fit to lead me now into the pastoral ministry. It's been His doing. And as He has done that, I am trying this morning with all my heart to shepherd your souls to think about this reality. Just because you're professing to be a Christian doesn't mean that you are. I pray, Lord willing, that you are. It's not like I'm going around doubting people, but you ought to search your own heart, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. See, all of us in this room, we're waiting for the bridegroom, verses 1 through 5. And all of us in this room someday will be called to meet the bridegroom, verses 6 through 10. And the question for you this morning is this, are you prepared? Turn back to Matthew chapter 25. We pick up our last verse this morning, verse 13. Are you prepared? Jesus closed His parable with a simple command in verse 13. He said this, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus may well delay. He has delayed for 2,000 years, but you still need to be prepared for the day when the delay is over. It won't work to make preparation for the Lord's coming after He comes. And the foolish virgins are a good example of this. You need to be prepared beforehand. And so I ask you, if the Lord came back today, would your lamp burn brightly Or would you have to go into town and purchase some oil? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Let's pray that we would be. Why don't you bow your heads? Let's pray. I would even have you now to examine yourselves, examine your hearts. Are you in the faith? Do you have the Spirit of God? Has God been gracious to you to cause you to be born again? Has God made you alive to Him? 
Are you dead to sin, but alive to God? Has the message of the gospel of grace so overwhelmed you that it becomes your joy that you boast in nothing else other than the cross of Jesus Christ? Oh, my prayer and my heart is that that would be the case. And I want to go before the throne of grace to plead Him. Oh God, I come now on behalf of Rock Valley Bible Church. I come on behalf of all of us here, not to be a priest in any sense, that they can't come to you apart from me, but I'm coming as an intercessor for them. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would reveal to us, each of us individually, of our own states and our own souls before you. I pray that we as a church might not be just like these ten virgins walking around all assuming everything's okay. but may we examine ourselves and may we be prepared for the day in which Christ will come back. I pray that we would be prepared by, by realizing everything we have in Christ. We sang earlier, Before the cross I humbly bow. I place my trust in the Savior. Your finished work, work has captured my my gaze. You bore the wrath and I know the grace. Oh God, I pray that would be all of us. That we would see and realize the wrath of Jesus Christ that He bore on the cross. And that Your grace would be true and real in all of our lives. I think of all the families here, of all the peoples. God, may you so work in us that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling because, O oh Lord, it is you who work in us. So I'm pleading and I'm praying to you on behalf of these people right now, Lord, that you would work within us. If you're willing to do after your good pleasure, and I pray that you would delight to prosper us, the church, to protect us, the church, to provide for us as a church, that in all ways Christ would receive the glory. I think about that day. When the body of Christ will join Jesus, be married to Him, be fellow heirs with Him. I pray that that would be a day that would find all of us there rejoicing, not outside looking in, longing to be there. God, I pray You'd teach us to be wise about our souls. As Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I pray that we would give up that which we can't keep. It's our souls, our life, to gain Christ what we can never lose. Oh God, work in us. For Christ, for His sake, it's in His name we pray. Amen.